Welcome to Merrick's Experts, the podcast that provides analysis of current affairs in China. We're delighted to have a guest today who actually combines knowledge from the various fields which is necessary to understand Chinese tech, the tech ecosystem, and especially the startup scene there, um, because uh, she studies various sciences and also travels in between China, the US, and now also Europe. So we're delighted to have Rayma with us. Rayma is really somebody who brings different fields of knowledge, as I already said, because she has initially been educated at the University of California at Berkeley as an engineer. She studied uh, electrical engineering and computer science there, then ventured into the business side of things. Uh, she did a, a executive master of business administration at the Tsinghua University and also INSEAD. And then she finally added on top a Master of Education at the University of Illinois. So she really brings together all the different expertise which is needed to dive deeper into this topic. She then worked in private equity and investment banking in Beijing, Shanghai, and also Silicon Valley for nearly 10 years, and then ventured on to head a Greater China Investment Partner at 500 Startups, which is a Silicon Valley headquartered startup accelerator investment fund, and she uh, helped to bring into life many companies from mainland China, but also from Hong Kong and Taiwan. And now she co-hosts TechBus China. Uh, for those of you who don't know this podcast yet, please subscribe to it. It's really very insightful, very inspiring. It's a weekly podcast powered by Pan Daily and covering a lot of news on China's technology and innovation. And Ray is also a venture partner. Besides being a technology expert and a commentator, she's also still in business, a venture partner at 10H Capital, and also an executive chairman at Rookie Fund, and also a mentor, and also helping young startup entrepreneurs in various fields to found breakthrough new technologies in AI, of course, big data and related things. Rebecca, let's get on stage, and I will also briefly introduce her. Rebecca Arshizati is Arshizati. I should roll the air, you told me. Arshizati is a likewise inspiring uh, colleague, is also involved into cross-cutting research here and cutting-edge research here at Merrick's, connecting dot like Rema does. Rebecca is connecting foreign policy, a foreign policy angle on China with um, China's domestic digital and technology issues. All right, so once again, welcome you to this Merrick's Lunch Talk here on Chinese Internet Entrepreneurs and amid the U.S.-China trade dispute with Ray Mar and Rebecca Arshtesati. And Rebecca, you will kick it off with the first question to Ray Mar. So when we talk about Chinese tech in Europe, uh, increasingly we talk about 5G and we talk about geopolitical tensions between China and the United States. And just last week, uh, the U.S. government launched a national security review of TikTok uh, owner ByteDance uh, for its acquisition of U.S. social media app Musical.ly. This reflects tensions between the two ecosystems and people on both sides talk increasingly about the coupling 
So my first question to you is, do you think we're really headed towards the coupling uh, of the two tech ecosystems with Silicon Valley on one side and China on the other side? My answer to that question might be a little different from folks who are more focused on a broader set of technology companies and investments. So my expertise is really on internet, right? So, uh, and, and software in general, so not like infrastructure, et cetera. When you talk about internet and bus business to business software, for example, actually I would argue that, you know, there was no, that the two ecosystems were pretty much completely separate, right? And in consumer internet, um, you know, you have seen various attempts of U.S. companies or other Western companies to try to go into China, but they've not really made big successes. And TikTok is probably the only Chinese company, and it's also also uh, the company it did it bought before Musically, were the only Chinese companies that really succeeded sort of organically. Um, I would say that uh, in business software, enterprise software, uh, so far you also see much the same. Um, it, it's not necessarily because there's a concerted effort to keep out Western companies, but um, for a lot of the use cases that you see uh, entrepreneurs working on in Silicon Valley, they just don't translate well into the Chinese market, right? The small businesses, small medium enterprises, or even sometimes the large enterprises are just not at that level where they can utilize that kind of software. For those of you who are more interested in tech, there's people, investors have been waiting to invest in uh, 2B software for a long time now in China, for at least like probably the better half of the last decade. And we have yet to see huge B2B uh, successes in China uh, locally. And um, so I would, I would basically say the decoupling that people are talking about, I think, is more like what you mentioned at the beginning of your question, which is sort of on the infrastructure level, right? On the semiconductor level, on the you know manufacturing or device level, uh, on the consumer internet and business enterprise software level, there's never really been, it's never been really that integrated. The two ecosystems are just like very different. And then in this, in specifically for consumer, there were a lot of protective measures that made it very difficult for foreign enterprises. And now it's just like, now the market is just so different in China versus the West that I think even if those measures were relaxed, it would be very difficult for uh, many foreign enterprises to compete. Did I understand you right, Rema, that you're saying the companies you're looking into more into the consumer end or the e-commerce companies, they're not at all worried about this tech cold war? That's not something that really affects them. Actually, the Chinese domestic market is quite large, right? So you have 1.5 billion people, over 800 million or whatever it is now that's online. Um, and you have the largest e-commerce market now in the world, blah, blah, blah. So basically, actually, Chinese companies are highly focused on getting market share inside of domestic China. And there is very, very intense competition they're actually, um, I think just a couple of days ago, I was reading on to, uh, reading about this, the um, number two to number four uh, e-commerce players in China have banded together to sue the number one e-commerce player, right? So if you think about it, I mean, and that's just one specific example, but basically the Chinese internet companies are more concerned about domestic competition. Abroad, they're more interested in developing markets. For most of them, the U.S. market is something nice to have, even when political tensions weren't as high, uh, but was not 
was not always like a, was not really a priority, basically. But since we mentioned TikTok, uh, I was wondering what you make of the scrutiny of companies because of the way they handle user data. This is something that happened here in Germany as well. Last uh, year in December, we had an investigation into Mobike uh, for the way they store data. And uh, really in Europe, sometimes I hear people talking about Chinese users not caring at all about privacy and internet companies growing out of an ecosystem where users don't care about privacy. It's definitely not true that Chinese users don't care about privacy. It might be true that they're less educated about privacy because, you know, the internet had a shorter history in China relative to some countries in the developed West. So that could be true. Uh, and especially for some of the rural, uh, you know, users in China that are just coming online in the past five years. So yeah, they, they could be less educated about privacy, but it's definitely not true that they don't care, right? So actually the CEO of Baidu, China's search engine, uh, you used to be one of the top three companies, internet companies in China. He got in trouble actually last year, uh, last spring, when he said, he made a statement like this, like, oh, Chinese users don't care about privacy, therefore we can do with the data as we like. And uh, both, I would say, users and uh, the government came down really hard on that, right? So in fact, I think he probably jump-started a lot of the current initiatives the government has put in place to um, basically... Um, I would say keep a tighter hold on uh, or have a, ha look more into internet companies and what they're doing with user data. He's basically educated the market, I think. Um, but if, yeah, again, if you go online, just look at what people were saying and how people were responding to them. Um, Chinese users obviously aren't very happy with some of the uh, privacy or lack of privacy the internet companies have been doing there, but they just feel that they don't have other choices. It's interesting that you're saying that Chinese users are obviously also pushing these topics, privacy, ethics. We also have seen a lot of debate in this realm. I mean, still also Chinese users are seen from, from the perspective of Europe or the U.S. as one of the major driving force of China's you know, dynamics in the tech field, right? So their curiosity, their openness. Here in Germany, we always tend to be people are saying we tend to be too conservative, we're too skeptical. Um, so let's again take a company like ByteDance, ByteDance, which is the owner of TikTok. How would you access their like development from a video sharing app into now? I mean, they also build basically, is trying to build a whole ecosystem now, venturing into mobile phone, uh, smartphone production. How much does the curiosity of the Chinese, the Chinese population, the urban middle class, really mm -hmm. drive the IT development in China? Yeah, well, TikTok is, uh, or ByteDance, the parent company, is a really interesting example of a, of a startup that has succeeded in China without allying itself uh, with either Tencent or Alibaba. And, and by the way, that's like a big thing. If you do go to China and visit tech companies, you'll find that basically uh, startups uh, or even very large companies are allied in one camp or the other, depending on what business they're doing. If they're more entertainment, they might be more on the Tencent side. And if they're e-commerce, um, they could be on Alibaba's side. Uh, anyway, the uh, the users, I would say the users sort of driving this. The, the example you mentioned earlier, the mobile um, it was actually an acquisition. So uh, ByteDance just launched a new phone. 
it's only like $400. They're not planning to sell it outside of China though, but I was looking at the specs. It's like pretty legit. It's like a 20 megapixel like selfie camera uh, for those of you who are into that. <laughs> Obviously, TikTok uh, would want its users to have that because a lot of the videos are basically people recording themselves, right, with these various uh, filters. The rationale behind that acquisition, though, was really because that was a struggling um, independent mobile brand that had, I would say, at least for the first few years of its life, had really good mindshare in terms of certain, of like, you know, urban users, et cetera. I think that was purely because that company was going bankrupt and they were able to buy it on the cheap. And um, also that now acquisition costs in China are just as expensive as what you see in the West. So therefore, even though it sounds kind of crazy to go buy a mobile phone to have your app pre-installed on there um, to acquire users, it's not it's not a totally crazy idea because you are seeing some apps, you know, getting into like the hundreds of dollars for each new um, user acquired. I would say the um, the TikTok example of the mobile is not really driven by user behavior. However, there are plenty of other things that you see TikTok and other ByteDance products pushing as a result of interesting user behavior in China that are pretty innovative. So um, one thing that I have been looking a lot into uh, and was really obvious in my latest trip on China is live streaming e-commerce. So TikTok is really a short video platform. Uh, it's pre-recorded, but them and everyone else that you see basically in Chinese internet are trying live streaming e-commerce or using video to drive e-commerce. So I think that's something you don't see as much, or maybe not at all in the West. I, I don't, I, at least I don't buy things that way. Raymond, help us to understand what is live streaming e-commerce actually about? Who is the target audience and what, what, is, what is the product? Or is there a specific Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Category? So, uh, again, sometimes the live streaming e-commerce is actually selling services. It could be some kind of, you know, education package or it could be like a, a diet plan maybe. But most of the time they are selling like actual physical products. So it's basically like, I don't know if you have in Germany um, TV shopping. So it's kind of like TV shopping, except the difference is that it's on your mobile, right? And you can interact with the host much more easily. And you can see everyone else, like everyone else, like it feels like just you're in this giant chat room, right? So you can sort of sense other people uh, who are also being the program at the same time. So it just feels a lot more. I mean, I, again, I don't use it. I've just watched videos of it. So... I think people who are really into it just feel it's a lot more entertaining, yeah. So, and you see people now in uh, Southeast Asia, all the e-commerce platforms in Southeast Asia are also, this, again, this is like a fairly recent phenomenon. It's like maybe a year and a half, two years old, but you've seen it ramp up really quickly. Alibaba last year, their GMV off of live streaming e-commerce was already 15 billion. So they had a really large market share of this, but um, they're basically doubling down on this strategy because, you know, e-commerce, by just going to, uh, do, to Amazon and I get searching for it, I guess, is just not entertaining enough for people. And it doesn't help them uh, discover products, right? You sort of, the, the e-commerce that many people are used to maybe in the West, or at least like the e-commerce that I usually do, it's like I kind of already know what product I want uh, versus this is uh, someone maybe I trust curating a bunch of stuff that I didn't know I need. 
you mentioned that many startups have to be you know, affiliated with one internet giant or, or, or the other. And recently on, on Twitter, you were saying that you know, the BAT era seems to be over. Uh, Baidu, Alibaba, and, and Tencent. And you were suggesting a new acronym because now the most valuable internet companies are no longer those three. Uh, right. So what has changed? Yeah, well, I suggested one, and then it was immediately shot down because people were like, oh, it's still BAT. It's just that the B has been uh, replaced by ByteDance, right? Baidu has been replaced by ByteDance. Uh, ByteDance, in case you didn't know, has a private valuation of $75 billion dollars. But it's set by SoftBank, so we'll, we'll see. So I, I only included publicly listed companies where you know the valuation technically is a little holds up better to scrutiny. And if you look at by market cap, now the top four companies are you still have Alibaba and Tencent, but then immediately after that you have a Meituan, which is a local services. I see a lot of you nodding, so you have heard of this company. It's like a local services app, a Meituan, by the way bought Mobike, the orange bikes that you see on the street here. And uh, the fourth one is um, Pinduoduo. So Pinduoduo is a one of the new e-commerce upstarts. It's only about four years old and it caters to sort of rural users. And it and it made big uh, made a big splash in the news. The only reason why I even tweeted about it was uh, Pinduoduo being only four years old exceeded JD's market cap. And JD is a large e-commerce company that's been around for like two decades. And, you know, it was a surprise to everyone that Pinduoduo could grow so fast and even overtake JD. If you do include privately valued startups, you have you have ByteDance, but you actually also have another company that's valued at over $100 billion, at $150 billion, actually, and that's Ant Financial. And that's that's actually a third owned by Alibaba. So, and that is the financial services, you know, what you probably might know as Alipay and all this other stuff. If you had to name a trend in China internet that maybe people in the West aren't, uh, you know, following that much, what would that be? The biggest trend is basically uh, the rise of the rural consumer, right? So in China, you know, we always talk about like 1.5 billion people, but really it's divided into roughly like the coastal urban areas, which is, depending on who you talk to, 200 to 400 million users or people. And then you have the rest, which is about a billion who are not in the coastal areas and live on as little as a thousand RMB a month of disposable income, which is like about 150 USD, right? That's very different from the coastal areas where uh, we're talking about like the tier one and tier two cities like your Beijing, Shanghai, Hangzhou, et cetera, where you have like Starbucks on every other street corner uh, and people are having, you know, per capita GDPs of over $10,000 have been for a while and have like significantly higher disposable income. Um, I would say in the last decade, the first five years was basically everyone was focused on what they call consumer upgrade, which is how were the coastal customers in China who are already the richest in the country going to catch up basically to the rest of the developed world, right? So it was a lot about selling them luxury goods, things like basically every fad that you can think of in the U.S. like you would see in China, right? Like intermittent fasting, you have it in China, you know, soul cycle, like people have clones in China, or I don't know if people know what soul cycle is. Um, indoor cycling, yeah. Yoga, like Lululemon's doing super well in coastal China. 
basically anything you can think of, salads. I'm vegetarian, so when I went to China, there were no salads chains and then in the past 10 years, like boom, you have a lot of venture-funded salad chains. So the coastal, that, that was a big trend in the first five years. The last couple years, maybe not quite as long as five, five, have been really about, well, what are the rest of the country going to do, right? They typically don't use an iPhone. They typically have a lot of free time, actually. That's a common trend you'll see in, in a lot of these companies that address uh, the rural customer. Um, they don't have good access to retail, so e-commerce is a huge part of their life. And they just have like lack of entertainment, right? But they have very good uh, internet access. Um, so China's done a great job with infrastructure. They have these cheap Androids, great data access, lots of free time, and nothing to entertain them. So. Basically, you see a lot of companies take advantage of these characteristics and build up user bases very quickly by capturing this population. What I said earlier, Pinduoduo, basically um, the majority of their users are um, the rural consumer. And you see that with a lot of the other companies that have you know, gone from zero to 100 million, 200 million users uh, in the past like three, four years. This is Merrick's Experts. the Chinese consumer story is a lot of, as you said, catching up, also curiosity, new trends, live, uh, live streaming e-commerce. But I was wondering, we also do have apps like Zhihu, which is a kind of Quora, a Q&A forum in China, where we see really very professional debates. I mean, for us in liberal democracies, I sometimes think we really shifted a lot. There was all this enthusiasm about the internet, also companies, especially in China, Weibo, WeChat, offering platforms to debate, to organize. You know, we had a very political lens on it. And now we're kind of moving into the direction of reducing sometimes, I sense, the Chinese people to, they're, they're basically consumers. They're not interested in anything beyond that. But I wondered what kind of other trends do you maybe see beyond, you know, new entertainment elements and dynamics? What about education or social entrepreneurship? Do, do we also see some new inspiring trends from China, which something maybe we might be missing here in, in the West? I don't know if I have anything super positive to share, like social entrepreneurship. Uh, but education, for example, the, the example you mentioned, Zhihu, which is like a Chinese version of Quora, or at least that's how they initially started. Now they look quite a bit different, um, is really capitalizing on the very healthy market for education services in China. And actually you see sort of two things. One is post-secondary education, where it's like, career services, so Zhihu now has a lot of e-learning catered towards the professional who's already working, and that's because people in China just have a lot of anxiety in general about their job, about not being well prepared for their job, or about how to get ahead in their job. It's a very competitive society over there, and, and by the way, people work like, you know, well over 50 hours sometimes in, in different companies, and the other trend in uh, education is that the 
previously, a lot of people were focused on getting um, kids into college or preparing them. Uh, oh, sorry, Ki a lot of kids going abroad. So a lot of students going abroad. That was a huge like industry of test prep. Now they're finding that actually parents are spending a lot more money on K-12 tutoring. So that's just like a huge market, profitable market. Actually, if you look at the number of total listed Chinese companies in the U.S., you'll find like a lot of them are these types of companies, what they call education technology. And other trends you have that are, I think are not quite so positive, um, which we've covered on the podcast, actually, uh, a trend that pe most people probably don't expect is that what they call medical cosmetology is a huge market in China. Depending on which report you read, it's either $15 billion or $30 billion, um, which are both very high numbers. And uh, medical cosmetology basically means procedures people, medical procedures people are doing to make themselves look prettier, right? So, and you see um, a lot of youth doing these services, a lot of uh, advertising dollars. Baidu had something like half of its you know, search advertising uh, dollars come from this one category of product. So it, it's just like a huge market that a lot of people are putting a lot, putting a lot of their personal uh, savings into and a lot of businesses are making money from. You mentioned that, uh, you know, there's a lot of pressure on, uh, on workers in companies in China. And I think that's also true for, for tech workers. And I know with uh, UNICEF, you also focused on an interesting field, which is uh, mental health, mm -hmm. the mental health sector, investing in, in companies there. Are you doing this uh, in China? Um, very little right now. I would say in the past, like, let's call it five years, there's been more um, awareness of mental health in China, but not to the extent that you see in the West, right? Or I live in San Francisco where I feel like everyone has a therapist. So uh, maybe it's different here too. But in China, I would say in 2017, I remember the word of the year, like a, not, there's no official sort of organization that rewards this, but a, a lot of media sort of collectively together noticed that like, hey, this word was appearing a lot in our you know headlines, et cetera, and that, that word was anxiety. And that was when people started actually like looking into, oh, hey, like our very fast-paced, very hardworking culture is actually creating, um, and this very competitive place also is creating a lot of anxiety. And how does that feel? Or how does it manifest itself? And I think there's starting to be more awareness in terms of like actual technology companies working on this, I would say not as much. However, you do see things like um, in China, there's this phrase called 996, which means working 9 a.m. to 9 p.m. six days a week. And that was a sort of, I guess, meme that people had around the working culture in many companies, not just technology, but specifically in, for developers and technology companies. And, and by the way, it is true. A lot of these companies do sort of have a maybe not actual uh, regulation that you need to work this much, but you pretty much end up working this much. And when there was a, a company that decided to make this part of its official rules, there was like huge backlash in China among certain, especially younger employees against this. So I think there's starting to be awareness, for example, that like, oh, we should have balance in our lives. Physical health is really important. Mental health is also really important, but I don't think it's there on a large scale. 
through all this dynamics you just described, startups thrive because of, of course, previously the overall dynamic growth situation uh, within China. And of course, the, the domestic market, the size of the market is crucial, has been crucial, and also the amount of investment really going into that mm -hmm. that startup sector. And we've seen recently, the first half of 2019, that um, capital investment in startups has really plummeted by, I think it was 54%. Mm -hmm. So... What do you read into this? Is this just the short-term effect of the also trade dispute with the U.S., or is that pointing towards what experts call the burst of the tech bubble in China? Is that something we should be concerned about, the burst of the tech bubble, I ICT bubble in China? Uh, so first of all, the decline in venture dollars into um, technology companies basically happened, I think, before the you know trade war really got um, white hot. So... I don't think there is much of a link there. Um, I'm sure it has some effect. I, I would say, um, again, there's not super good statistics on this because if you actually like live in China, it's really hard to disentangle um, you know, true dollars going into technology companies because a lot of these funds that are announced for technology, technology might actually deploy a significant amount into uh, like an office building for technology companies, which I would argue is nothing like, you know, actual venture capital. So uh, so those numbers, I think you have to take with a large lump of salt. Now that they've declined, um, again, I think there's probably people who have done more uh, detailed studies on this, but my impression is that it was because of a lot of hot money, right? So a lot of people who were inexperienced with asset class but got really excited because Alibaba went public in 2014 and Xiaomi achieved like a $50 billion or $45 billion valuation same year. And boom, all of a sudden you go from, um, you know, the top 10 richest in China, uh, richest people in China being mostly real estate moguls to, oh, like five out of the 10 are internet entrepreneurs who came from nothing, right? Uh, and then the government getting also really behind entrepreneurship and seeing that the uh, really pushing entrepreneurship, especially in technology, because you're seeing the manufacturing slow down. So you want to transition to a knowledge economy. So all these things happened. And then there was just like a lot of capital pouring into this industry because before then, people who hadn't invested in, in the industry, their experience was basically looking at like Jack Ma and going like, oh, well. I'm sure I can find a Jack Ma somewhere, right? So now, and I, I think I was also at the receiving end of that because I was working for a fund that was trying to raise capital for globally. But, you know, I talked to some Chinese limited partners and there was just like very little understanding of actual venture capital. So I think a lot of the decline that we're seeing is just people not like putting in their money a couple years ago, realizing like, oh, wow, like it's not going to be <laughs> that quick. So not not deciding to re-up their commitment. Speaking of, of investment, with uh, TechBus China, you recently took some uh, public market investors on a visit to different companies in Beijing and Shanghai. And I was wondering uh, what your favorite company was uh, from that visit, from a venture capitalist perspective, and also uh, what are key insights from those uh, company, company visits? 
we took the investors on the companies because it was a curated investor trip and a lot of them were interested in content as well as e-commerce, which is completely understandable because that's where I would argue China really leads. Um, so I really had to pick a favorite company. I think one of the companies I thought was really interesting is, is actually um, a company I had never met before and it's not a publicly listed company, even though most of the companies we visited were publicly listed, and that was Club Factory. It's a group of Chinese entrepreneurs who've taken that exact idea I told you about earlier, which is catering to the rural user, right, it, which is a very different experience of creating product than to, you know, the coastal elite, but they're taking that idea to India. And so, which is really interesting, right, because I've only been to India once as a tourist, but my understanding is that India also has sort of this gap in development where you have some people living very much like a developed Western lifestyle, maybe not on the magnitude of 400 million like you have in China. And then you have like all these other people who are effectively in rural areas with pretty you know, poor infrastructure and very little entertainment options. But... India has also similarly done a great job with data infrastructure. So they still have like really good internet access and you know they have like cheap Android phones. Um, so how are you going to take advantage of that opportunity as these people are coming online for the first time um, and have the same in China like a lot of time <laughs> and lack of places to go. So uh, I thought that was really interesting. That company happens to be doing e-commerce, not content. But I thought that was a great example of, you know, Chinese entrepreneurs seeing what's happening in China and then immediately thinking about, like, how can I export this to another market where the conditions are similar? Talking about visions or maybe coming from an opportunity to a more visionary perspective, what kind of problems of humanity maybe even you would Im could imagine technology Chinese entrepreneurs could could help us to solve I mean we've been talking a little bit about poverty in in, in one sense is there any when you think about the major challenge or major problem we have globally what kind of problem do you think or you hope that Chinese entrepreneurs could make a contribution to solve yeah, I mean, I don't know if there's anything in particular that Chinese entrepreneurs are better at than Western entrepreneurs or, I don't know, Indian or Southeast Asian. I do think that there is um, some government, at least call it incentives, maybe the government isn't necessarily like forcing anyone to go into any particular industry, but by dangling certain incentives, it can have certain sectors grow very quickly. Combating climate change in the form of electric vehicles, I guess, recently has been, I think, done, I want to say it has been done well in China in terms of the amount of effort and capital that has gone in, in terms of actual results. <laughs> I don't think it's been quite as positive, uh, but, you know, we can be positive, or sorry, we can be hopeful um, that maybe something will come about as a result of all this attention. Um, I think in terms of Healthcare, which is something I'm not an expert in, but I have many friends who um, look at healthcare, that uh, China has been, um, again, the, the, probably partly because of the government, because it is so regulation sensitive, um, has been um, you know, pushing really hard for uh, patient data to be more open for, um, you know, for, uh, I think recently I saw, um, 
some news around, um, you know, ceilings on drug prices, um, really sort of stepping in and not only making the situation better for citizens, you know, currently, but also setting the stage for innovation in the sector in the future. Uh, again, I'm not an expert, but this is just something that I've been told um, people are quite bullish on. When we were talking, you mentioned that a lot of your friends are considering going back to China to to start a business there. And uh, you mentioned the government and, you know, the conditions that the government sets for entrepreneurs to set up a company. Is it still a place, a market where it is interesting? And I mean, the competition is is obviously very intense. Uh, it can be an overcrowded market, especially if you look at e-commerce in China. Um, how is how is the market like for young people who want to who want to set up a company? Yeah, so it's interesting. I ha I have a combination of so I personally grew up in the U.S., but then I do have I have a combination of both uh, people who are more like me who grew up in the U.S. Um, wanting to go to Asia now, uh, specifically China, and then also and of course like your typical uh, returnees, which are people who grew up in China but went to school abroad. I think the latter population is really because of, you know, immigration policy that it's just very complicated to get uh, working visas in the U.S. now. So most of them just want to go back to China um, where they can sort of leverage their uh, elite education credentials and great English skills and um, not have to worry about sort of like their visa status. But even for the first uh, part of the population, there's um, a lot of interest in, in going to China and at least working there for a few years because there is this perception that for certain sectors, like certain pockets of consumer internet, e-commerce, et cetera, that the companies in China are moving faster, iterating faster, innovating faster, um, launching new, completely new products and getting it to you know hundreds of millions of users, uh, i.e. scaling, faster, so they just want to be part of that excitement. I was personally really surprised because, yeah, like having lived in China from 07 to 15, I was like, yeah, it's really competitive there. <laughs> like, and people work really hard. You think you're um, going to just move there and, you know, live a Silicon Valley lifestyle over there, but I was like, no, I know people who are, uh, it's like not optional to not go into the office every Saturday, right? So, um, but anyway, but there, that enthusiasm is still there. Rima, thank you very much that you joined our Merrick's Lunch Talk on Chinese Internet Entrepreneurs amid the U.S.-China Trade Dispute with Rebecca Arshesati and Christine Chikupfer. You have been listening to Merrick's Experts, the podcast from the Makato Institute for China Studies in Berlin. If you want to learn more about our work, please visit us at merricks.org.